Hello and welcome to the Beyond Your Research Degree podcast by the University of Exeter Doctoral College. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Beyond Your Research Degree. I'm your host Kelly Priest, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr Natalie Garrett. Natalie currently works as the private secretary to the Met Office chief scientist. So Natalie, are you happy to introduce yourself? My name is Natalie Garrett and I work at the Met Office as the private secretary to our chief scientist. I've been in this role since January of this year, so more than half my time in this position has now been spent working from home, which has been an interesting kind of journey, if you like. Before January, I was working in the International Climate Services team, still at the Met Office, and I had been in that position for, I think, the best part of four years. And the purpose of that role was essentially to manage a project that was all about translating climate science into actionable information for decision makers. But prior to all of that, I was a postdoc at the University of Exeter, working in the biomedical physics group. And you might notice that there's a bit of a segue there from biomedical physics to climate and weather science. And it's not necessarily immediately apparent what exactly unifies those two areas. But broadly, what motivates me in work is to do something that's meaningful and that will have a positive impact on society. So the work I did at the university was primarily translating biomedical advances into kind of taking physical interpretations of them. So one of the major projects I worked on, my role was to provide mechanistic validation for the claims that were being made in patents for novel nanomedicines that were aimed to treat things like Alzheimer's and brain cancer. And having lost a family member to brain cancer, that was obviously an area that was very close to my heart. So sometimes I feel like my career has been a little bit of a random walk but ultimately I've always done what I thought sounded interesting and I've <laughs> perhaps naively assumed that job opportunities would make themselves apparent to me along the way and I've been very fortunate and privileged that that has worked out for me. That's brilliant and, and really interesting to hear about that that move from kind of being a postdoc and researching inside um inside a university to moving outside and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experience of that transition so what it was like kind of moving to applying for jobs outside of academia and and how you find how different you find working in 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 a different kind of research environment is mm. so I had been working as a postdoc at the University of Exeter since late 2009. And by the time I left, it was January 2016. So that is quite a substantial chunk of uh, my professional career was spent working, doing the whole uh, postdoc merry-go-round where you go from contract to contract without much job security. I think a lot of people in academia can empathize with that kind of situation. You don't have much job security. You're trying really hard to set yourself apart from your peer group to improve your chances of perhaps getting a lectureship or getting a fellowship or a grant. 
And I was in a situation where leaving Exeter wasn't really an option for me. So I was thinking about how I could give myself the best chances of securing a lectureship at Exeter University. And a lectureship position came up in my research group working for a different PI and I went for it. And although I scored highest at interview and my presentation, I was told that I couldn't bring added value because I was already there. And that was quite a bitter pill to swallow at the time, but I can see what they mean in hindsight. And if I had applied to other universities for lectureships, it may have been more um, feasible for me to negotiate or leverage um, a, a contract at university. At any rate, I was encouraged to apply for fellowships and I was given the opportunity of a sort of tenured position at the end if I was successful in that. But ultimately, I started looking at other opportunities and I saw a job at the Met Office. Now, my background did not involve coding. It did not really involve modeling. So I was quite surprised when I saw a job advert that I felt I could apply for. And this role was uh, titled Senior European Climate Service Coordinator. So it's quite a mouthful. The skills they were looking for, um, there was the usual planning, organization, time management, which if you have a PhD and you've actually managed to complete it, you have that in spades. But it also specifically said that they needed good interpersonal skills with evidence of communicating with and developing productive working relationships with a range of stakeholders and also communicating complex information into plain English. Now, interestingly, <laughs> during my postdoc, I had been very, very keen um, as an as a outreach um, sort of ambassador of the university. I was in the STEM network and I'd participated in things like I'm a scientist, get me out of here, and uh, soapbox science and three minute wonder pretty much any scientific outreach competition that you can engage in, I'd, I'd had a go at. And I was very passionate about scientific outreach. In fact, the Institute of Physics had me as a guest lecturer and I was traveling all around the Southwest of the UK, giving talks to some, I think in total, it was about 2000 school children talking about my research. So this is something that was very, very passionate. I was very passionate about, but my boss had said to me, you only need to do one piece of outreach a year for it to count on your CV and after that point you should stop and focus your efforts elsewhere <laughs> but I didn't really listen to him and I just carried on doing what I wanted to do and what I was passionate about and in the end because of that it put me in a really good position to apply for this job at the Met Office. Additionally while I was doing my postdoc I founded the Early Career Researcher Network within the college and that was bringing together early career scientists and helping people work together to improve their quality of their jobs, to improve their chances of securing funding. We had career workshops, we had guest lecturers come in and give seminars. We had occasions where we bought pizza and blitzed the internet trying to find funding opportunities. Because I built that network, I had experience of network management, I had experience of engagement, and I'd set up a social media channel for that too. So I had all these communication stakeholder network management skills which made me the ideal candidate for this job and this was all stuff that was done in the margins that I was discouraged from doing um, so yeah it's an interesting one I don't know if it would always work out that way but ultimately 
do things that matter to you is the what I would say if you're considering academia. Ultimately, you may not find yourself in a position where you have a science communication job, but the skills that you gain doing science communication are massively transferable outside of academia. So I was surprised when I was offered the job at the Met Office. I'm always quite negative about my performance interview, but actually my new boss said that it was one of the best interviews he's ever sat in on. So I think that might be typical of academics. I think we are quite hard on ourselves in our performance and always focus on what we could do better and not necessarily so much on what we've done well. I think that's a, an area that I'm trying to work on in terms of personal confidence and that feeling of imposter syndrome. I'm moving from academia to the civil service because the Met Office is, uh, we're within the civil service, was very different. And my first day on the job, I got on an airplane to go to Paris for the kickoff meeting for the project. And I had an overnight stay and it was lovely meeting all these wonderful people that are very passionate about their work. And the next day we came back to Exeter and my boss said, well, you've had quite a busy day. You should probably take some time off in lieu. This is not a concept that you really get in academia. Um, actual contract six hours. <laughs> so my second day on the job, I came home mid-afternoon and ran myself a bubble bath <laughs> with the blessing. Nay, the, it, was, it was pretty great. It was pretty great. And to be honest, that feeling that you should be working, you should be writing, there's more that you should be doing. It took a while for me to get over that. And I think about two months into my job, I was walking through town one day and I glanced up. If you've been in Exeter High Street and you look up the hill to Streatham campus at the university, you can see the physics tower. You can see it from everywhere in Exeter. So you can never get away from its shadow if you feel like, oh, I should be working on my paper. I should be working on my thesis. And it was the first time that I looked up at that and thought, ah, this has no power over me now. <laughs> I'm allowed to have fun. I'm allowed to have a work-life balance. I think there's, there's so much in there that I think is really, um, really important about, you know, feelings of imposter syndrome and work-life balance. And I think as somebody as well that, that used to be an academic and admittedly is in an academic related role, there's something about different roles that are kind of more amenable, perhaps, or more easily <laughs> to, a work, to a better work-life balance. Um, what having you know you said about going from kind of contract to contract so you've obviously had a few kind of applications and interviews for academic or res academic research roles as well as at the Met Office was the application and interview process particularly different to your experience in academia? So although I have had multiple postdoc posts at the university they were all working for the same PI because the work I was doing was so specialised um, so I did have to apply and go through the interview process, but given that there are basically at the time a handful of people in the world that could do that job, I didn't feel that worried. <laughs> so it, yeah, that was pretty straightforward. So, so the Met Office interview was quite nerve wracking by comparison. I mean, they were very lovely. They did everything they could to make me feel at ease. Um, but I've, I think from a very young age, I've always been thrown into the mix with a variety of different people, different ages, and just encouraged to socialize because my father was very active in local politics and I was kind of co-opted into helping him out handing out canapes at events. So the idea of talking to strangers 
I just lost all fear of that. And talking to thousands and thousands of people about my science, it kind of public speaking becomes second nature when you do that enough. So interviews didn't have the same kind of fear for me. And I've discovered a, a trick. If you convince yourself that you're excited rather than afraid, then it becomes a lot more manageable and then you can actually enjoy it. So if you ever have a public speaking engagement and you feel nervous, you go, oh, I'm so excited. Imagine it's like a roller coaster or something. So yeah, the Met Office interview, I was massively overprepared. I identified the area that I was weakest at and that was in my climate and weather science knowledge. And I did an online free training course beforehand and I printed off my certificate. <laughs> and uh, I brought with me a folder with all kinds of things like copies of papers that I've published, uh, copies of my reference letters, just a whole range, a barrage of information. And none of it came out of my briefcase during the meeting, during the interview, but it was there and it helped me feel prepared. That's what I was going to ask, though, because I, I do something similar when I prepare for interviews. I do over prepare and I have this kind of folder of lots of stuff that I never refer to. But it's it, it's not necessarily about the kind of using that knowledge in the interview, but the feeling of it's kind of like psychological armor. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of my life I've just expected there to be gatekeepers. So I've never been able to consider myself to be an artist or a photographer, but now I've had experience writing poetry to explain climate change with community groups. And I've had prizes for the photographs that I've created myself. So I, no one said to me, here you go, here's an award, here's a certificate, here's an exam that you've passed, therefore you can call yourself a photographer, you can call yourself a poet or an artist. And because I've been so used to gatekeeping, because academia is all about mm -hmm. gatekeeping, um, I think it's, that does foster um, the whole imposter syndrome mentality. If you take yourself out of that headspace, you realise, oh, maybe I can actually do these other things too. Maybe I don't need someone's permission. And what what's your experience of that working in the civil service do you does it still have that sense of gatekeeping or does it feel a lot more open it's interesting there's so much well i guess there's a lot of bureaucracy in academia but my experience in academia was it's very much the academics were doing everything they could to avoid bureaucracy as far as possible <laughs> whereas my experience of the civil service is that bureaucracy is sort of embedded in the ways of working and sometimes that's for good reasons and other times it's just because that's how it's always been done and people haven't questioned it so it makes change quite difficult at a corporate level if you have people's ways of working and mindsets so embedded in a particular way of working like my boss the chief scientist was keen to get my impressions of the job within my first six months because he said you come with fresh eyes you can tell us all the things that we're doing that are stupid or that don't make sense or that could be optimized but once you're in there six months in you stop questioning stuff <laughs> yeah I completely yeah I can completely understand what you're saying so the the job that you do now as a as a it's a PA isn't it to the chief scientist is that right so it's a weird one it's called private secretary and <laughs> so to, to academics uh, they focus on the secretary part and think that it's an administrative job Whereas if, it, so my boss is the head of, the chief scientist at the Met Office. He is also the head of the science and engineering profession at the Met Office, that's HOSEP. And that comes under something called government science and engineering profession. 
And he's also on the Chief Scientific um, Advisor, the CSA Network, with Sir Patrick Balance at its head. So Sir Patrick Balance is my, one of my boss's bosses, if you like. And I regularly attend meetings to represent the Met Office at the Chief Scientific Advisor Network meetings. So the purpose of these is to make sure that all the science within the civil service within the UK is all joined up. So we also liaise quite regularly with UKRI. Um, it's, it's baffling how many connections and how many partners and how many stakeholders there are that the Met Office is involved with. But a large part of my job is liaising with government and the government office for science and translating quite complex requests with very short deadlines finding the right people within the Met Office to answer those questions, summarizing the information into a briefing, giving it to the chief scientist, and then asking him what he wants, what action he wants to be taken from it. So for instance, you may have seen in the news, the um, Academy of Medical Sciences report that was, that was created um, at the request of Sir Patrick Balance and uh, Chris Whitty for looking at what the reasonable worst case scenario would be for COVID this winter. So the Met Office fed in regarding seasonal forecasting and uh, air quality and aspects that relate to Met Office expertise. So I was involved in helping to coordinate our input to that report. And the, my boss was also present at the SAGE meeting where this was being discussed. So I had to help sort of coordinate minutes and note taking and so on. So it's, that's just one aspect of the role that I take. I also produce regular scientific updates for within the Met Office. So we produce quarterly briefings for all of our scientists. We have in the region of 600 scientists at the Met Office and my boss is kind of at the head of that, that tier, that, that triangle. And so we have to try to provide updates to everybody on a regular basis. And it's just incredibly varied. I think about 50% of my, my job is reactive. So I never know what's going to come into my inbox. We might have a request coming straight from government asking us to provide a briefing on a particular topic, um, or it might be just regular normal work that's just going along producing minutes for our scientific management committees or for our Met Office board meetings. So it's like, what I enjoy most about this role is that because I'm the private secretary to the chief scientist, people just answer my emails straight away. <laughs> I think when I leave this job, that probably won't be the case anymore. So another point to mention is that the private secretary roles aren't typically what you would expect as a lifetime position. The half-life is between two and four years. It's a development opportunity. So you get loads of opportunities to showcase your skills that would then enable you to better apply for a management position that's the aim of the role anyway that's really interesting and it's really interesting to have that kind of clear sense of clear sense of progression and direction I guess and I'm not saying that that you know there there is a clear kind of promotion route in academia but it's not I think it looks like it's very clear cut but it in fact is not I think <laughs> well by to be honest when I so I had I'm going to backtrack a bit when I applied to the Met Office I tried to use all of the skills that I had been sort of instilled in me from the doctoral training college at the university uh, like you need to negotiate your salary you need to do this you need to do that I went I tried this out with the civil service and they were like nah <laughs> you, you can try and negotiate your salary but this is as far as we can go there's just not it's so different to maybe applying for the private sector you know going to a 
a business and trying to negotiate, you probably have a lot more leeway. But the civil service, it's so tied down, they cannot make exceptions. The Met Office doesn't have the uh, flexibility to change the pay deal for new people coming in. It has to be, everything has to be auditable and fair. And fair enough, you know, it's, it's yeah. taxpayers' money. So I tried to negotiate my salary and completely failed. I said, well, how about this? You offer a relocation bursary and I don't have to relocate. Could you give me that instead? And they said, no, because <laughs> that's all provided on, on receipts. Okay. So I had to manage my expectations a little bit, but essentially I took a 20% pay cut. Oh, wow. To join the Met Office. Yeah. It was the very low end of what I was prepared to accept, which was, there was a lot of umming and eyeing, but the, the compensation package was also really good and it was a permanent job. Mm. So it was, it's a tricky one and it's not necessarily the right choice for everybody, but um, I've managed to, it's quite competitive uh, getting promotion within the Met Office and it's um, a competitive, so depending on the year, if people who are regularly publishing scientific output in science and nature are up against you, <laughs> you may not stand a chance of actually getting a promotion because it's judged based on merit and output and everything's graded. So it, it's quite challenging compared with academia where it felt like you progress up the spine points and it's relatively straightforward. I mean, that was my experience yeah. of it as a postdoc. That's not everybody's. So there seem to be a lot of, you know, things coming out that are quite different about the working environment and mm -hmm. the kind of work that you're doing. I wondered yeah. what the kind of, what the similarities were, what, what really kind of carries across from your experience as a, uh, as a researcher at a university into the role you're in now? So the biggest similarity is the passion that people have for the work that they do. The Met Office, it's just so lovely to log on every day and look at our, uh, we have um, a platform online where people can discuss a variety of topics. It's not quite social media, but people share things from for instance, the pictures of their cats. We have a cat appreciation for them. And we've also got like weather photographs and like people asking questions about science and, and technology. And people are just so keen to help each other. And they're so keen to share their enthusiasm. And you can end up going down rabbit holes. And it's really lovely that I think academia, you get paid essentially to think a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> is, is how I've seen it. And there aren't necessarily that many jobs in the world where you get that freedom to just pursue an idea and see where it takes you. And we have a certain amount of our time, I think up to 20% of our time is for development. So if you agree with your line manager that you want to learn a skill in a completely different area that might one day align with where you ultimately want to go in your career, then you have the freedom to do that. And that kind of freedom to learn and to develop and share your enthusiasm and I guess it's peer-to-peer -peer learning. Um, that, that's very similar to academia. Um, one big difference that I've noticed is I've not seen so many examples of um, that kind of toxic relationship where some people appear to be friendly and then will take your idea and then publish before you. I've not seen that at the Met Office. I'm not saying it doesn't necessarily happen, but my experience has been that people are in it together for the group benefit rather than their own individual benefit. Um, perhaps that's naive, perhaps I've just had a sheltered experience, but as a for instance, at one point I had a handover between two managers because um, one was leaving and one was taking me on and I was sat in a room and these two people were 
not quite arguing, but they were just very, very vocally trying to discover the best ways for me to develop in the direction that I wanted to develop in. And I thought, I've never had this before. I've never felt so nurtured. I've never had a line manager that's trying to find opportunities for me because before it felt like I was doing things whenever I found an opportunity that I knew would benefit me, but not my line manager in academia, I had to do the other stuff kind of behind his back because I knew that he would never give me the go ahead for it. And in fact, there was one occasion when I got a a travel grant from the Royal Society to do some independent research in Australia. And my PI turned around and said, well, that doesn't benefit me. So you're going to have to do it in your annual leave. Wow. (laughs) And I naively thought that he was allowed to make that call but a few years later I was talking to the head of school and mentioned this and he said well that that's not okay I, w- I wish you'd come to me about that but I naively thought well he wouldn't tell me something that wasn't true so another another top tip yeah don't assume that your line manager necessarily a has your best interests at heart or b knows what is best or what can be done for you so do ask around ask other people and it's it's amazing that you know in spite of that pushback you still continued with like the outreach work and the ECR network what that's actually became so fundamental to help you move forward i was wondering what other things you did maybe as part of your research but also you know on on the fringes like that that have been really important or formative in kind of helping you move forward with your career so instead of procrastinating in the traditional sense i used to just look for competitions and awards and things that I could it felt like it was wasting my time because I'd been indoctrinated in the idea that if I'm not actively working on a paper in some way then I'm not doing anything (laughs) productive (laughs) which is quite a toxic mindset in itself Um, so for instance I discovered um, the British Federation of Women Graduates is that something you've heard of no never see I'd never heard of it before until I was googling for opportunity so they offer uh, scholarships for academic excellence and they also offer hardship bursaries now I haven't actually checked that they still offer these but in 2009 they certainly did and I managed to secure myself five and a half thousand pounds for academic excellence as part of the women so a British Federation of Women Graduates Academic Awards in 2009 and if you have experience of securing grant money even if it's a competition like that then that's always going to look good on your CV. Um, and as I said, I, I got a uh, international travel grant to go to Australia. So I went to Melbourne and I was looking at malaria and trying to uh, detect it using spectroscopy and weirdly using butterfly wings as a substrate for doing this. Wow. So that was quite a bizarre. <laughs> yeah, when people say explain what you did for your PhD, I kind of go... Hmm. <laughs> the the experience of that early career researcher network it also gave me the opportunity to apply for funding from within the university and then I also ran competitions for um, outreach activities and po- online poster competitions mm-hmm. so I was then able to get experience of managing um, sort of grant funding so I could say that I've had that kind of experience so depending on where you want to end up if you think I want to be able to tick various boxes for different types of job. I've these opportunities enabled me to to do that in a kind of roundabout way, even though my main my main job didn't. I was also part of the working group for the Athena Swan um, initiative at the School of Physics. So equality and diversity has always been very important to me too. 
And I think it's, you know, really interesting is several of the things you've said, like you said um, early on about, you know, if you've done a done a research degree, you know, you've got time management and project management and everything in spades. Um, but actually, you know, there's other fundamental skills, which in some ways you just do need to go outside of that initial kind of bubble of your research to develop them. Yeah. And absolutely. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about actually the the motivation for that for you was just to follow follow your interests. Yeah, the things that mattered to me most. I think another thing that helped me was going to conferences by myself mm -hmm. and not with my research group and not with anybody else from the university because it forces you to stop talking to the same people. Because <laughs> <laughs> conferences are a massive networking opportunity, but it's so hard to make inroads. Um, I, I struggled a bit initially because it felt very cliquey and it's hard as an outsider just to essentially barge in on someone's conversation and say hi can I introduce myself to you? but it was um <laughs> it was because of uh going to a conference by myself that I met uh Baden Wood of Monash University in Melbourne um and he was the one that suggested I apply for a Royal Society travel grant which is why I was then able to demonstrate some independent research and have a first author publication without my PI from the University of Exeter on it so these chance meetings are so important and if you're able to I know that socializing at conferences can be really uncomfortable for a lot of people and perhaps the current situation the current pandemic is therefore opening more doors for people who find it challenging to do face-to-face -face networking I hope so I know not all conferences are offering the opportunity for early career networking but it's a good idea if, if, if any if anyone listening is involved in organizing workshops or seminars or conferences do allow specific time for early career people to engage and network and have an inverted commas coffee breaks because that's where the important conversations happen that's where the the next big collaborations start to form that's really really yeah that's really really great because they're all of the things that I think sometimes in a, in the kind of in the doctor college in that kind of central role we're kind of going on and on about all the time going you, you know how important the networking is and how important doing stuff outside of the research degree is because it's it's the stuff that builds your experience and builds your skill your skill base but I think sometimes people think oh no it, you know I won't think about that just now and oh it can't have that much of an it's impact. easy to yeah it's easy to put it off because it's not something that will immediately provide a tangible benefit yes. it's something that's a slow burner and learning how to use LinkedIn and Twitter and it's not for everybody but if you figure out how to use these platforms then it can leverage more opportunities in the future. What advice would you give to somebody who's looking at making that transition um, from a you know a research degree or a postdoc into a role outside academia but particularly thinking about moving into a civil service role i would say well you may have people within your current network who are people that work within the civil service or who are working in a kind of field that you'd like to go to always always talk to people who you already connected with who can give you insight especially if they're working closely with an area that you want to work in because there may be subject specific skills that you need to work on in order to be a viable candidate. But more generally, it's a numbers game. And do be prepared for failure. But 
people in academia especially don't tend to talk about the grants they didn't get or the papers they've never managed to get accepted in a journal or all the things that they tried and didn't work out or the experiments that failed because why would you why would you talk about that it's all it's all about self-promotion it's all about creating and curating this successful persona it's all about your h index and trying to find metrics that show off your skills the truth is unless you apply for dozens and dozens and dozens of things, you're not going to get the one that really matters. And that takes so much time and resilience and it can annoy the people that you've put down to do your references for you, especially if they get contacted by every single one. So that's another tip. Talk to the people who you've put down as your references to make sure they know that these things are coming up because honestly, they do sometimes get contacted out of the blue before you even get shortlisted. prepare them for that so yeah it's a numbers game and women especially are more likely to not apply for jobs if they don't feel that they fulfill all the criteria and there's been research that's shown that whether you meet 50% of the criteria or 90% of the criteria your chances of getting an interview are roughly the same so you may as well just apply for the thing and at worst you're going to get feedback that you can use to improve your next application. So you have to treat applying for jobs as a job. Put time aside for it. Do it regularly. Try and sign up to job alerts. Ask around. A lot of jobs come up and it's word of mouth. So put in those cold calling emails to people saying, I love what you do. I'd love to work with you run one day. If I was to, can you give me any advice on my current CV, what things you'd be looking for? Like, that's totally allowed. It feels like cheating, but <laughs> it's part of networking. And certainly in my experience as well, people actually are quite, are quite receptive mm. and you know, more often than not willing to help. Absolutely. It reminds me of when I was an undergraduate, the professors would make time for the students who genuinely wanted to understand and would say, can I come talk to you about this particular integral that I just can't solve? And the professors would sit and make the time for you. So yeah, ultimately people are in their job for a reason. And if they care about it and if they want to share that enthusiasm with other people, then of course, you know, they can, they'll help you. That's brilliant. And and one thing I wanted to pick up on um, is that thing about resilience and failure. How, what advice do you have for, for dealing with that, I guess, for dealing with that, um, that sense of failure or rejection, which, which is just so common in the job market. It is so common. I think it's a difficult one. Personally, it's not always been easy to accept failure and rejection. But the thing that I found that's helped the most is if I reframe it and instead of feeling like if I don't get to interview that I failed in the application process, what I've done is I've succeeded at submitting the application. And if I don't get past the interview stage, then what I've done is I've succeeded in getting to interview. So yeah, you haven't managed to get the thing that might've been the ultimate goal, but you have done the really difficult steps in getting there. And each time you get to interview, each time you're almost shortlisted, you know, you're improving your skills and it is a skill and to improve, you have to practice. So I would say definitely apply to things that maybe hit 70% of the things you're looking for, because at least if you don't get it, you don't feel like it's such high stakes. 
and apply for the things that might not necessarily excite you so much initially just so that you get that experience. Thanks to Natalie for that really interesting conversation thinking about the move from postdoc to civil service application processes the importance of networking and building that wider skill base outside of your immediate research project and that's it for this episode join us next time when we'll be talking to another researcher about their career beyond their research degree